0: different states are hurting at a completely different level, right? So yesterday I was looking at Utah's numbers, Davis County, where we're building a new industrial asset is at 4.7% unemployment at the end of June, 4.7%. Detroit is at 40%, right? So four out of 10 people in Detroit. So there is one city worse than Las Vegas at this point in time, and that's Detroit, right? So Vegas is right after that and then Orlando. And and so when we're looking at these, we're seeing a pattern of cities that were fundamentally very, very strong before the pandemic with jobs are coming back faster. I'm Neil.
1: And I'm Brittany.
2: We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world.
1: Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom.
2: Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great but we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We are buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage, on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you.
1: All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom.
2: Greetings friends and families. I'm Neil.
1: And I'm Brittany. And
2: you're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week is a technologist who's universally known in the real estate circles as the mad scientist of multifamily. He's a data guru, a man after my own heart, a process freak, and an outsourcing expert. Neil Bawa, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom
0: Thanks for having me on the show. Um, it's good to be on a show with another Neil. I know, I know.
2: I, I can't approve of how you spell it, though. I, I just that. Oh
0: yes. Yeah, so, so I have to. I have to tell you about that. I mean, when I was when when I stepped away from my technology career, I was still using my Indian name Navraj, and most people knew me as Nav, N-A-V, like navigator, right? And so I was like, but in real estate, you've got to have an American name. I mean, it's needed. So when I started looking at this, I was like, you know, Neil was something that I was very attracted to Neil Armstrong, the 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 astronauts, always been one of my idols. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a geek, right? So I mean, what's more geeky than people landing on the moon? And so I was like, I want I want his name. And but but then I was like, no. But you know, there's there's a lot of Neils out there. So. Uh, then I started researching versions of it and it turned out that the Irish version, N-E-A-L, it, sometimes it's also used as the last name. There's a lot of people with the last name Neil. And, and, I, and I realized that there are no Neil Bawa's on the internet with N-E-A-L. So I was like, okay, for better and for worse, I'm gonna be the only Neil Bawa on the okay. World Wide Web. And so many years later, I still am. So if you if you Google my name, you'll find all the good stuff and all the bad stuff about me. I haven't found the bad stuff yet, but I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it exists.
2: <laughs> yeah, I have sort of the opposite problem. Neil Henderson, and the, especially the way I spell it, is actually a very, very common name. I think the most <laughs> famous is a an Irish fireworks show expert or something. And so I get, you know, I get people (laughs) kind of emailing me about that. I
1: I have a tennis player, some kind of professional tennis player that I mean, I I should just be my maiden name, Brittany Deering. That's way less common, but you gave me Henderson and now I get, I do, I get emails and social media things occasionally where I've been tagged as a, as a tennis player. I'm like, nope, (laughs) wrong one. Nutritionist.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, um, so the last time I saw you was February of this last year at the Mm -hmm. Best Ever Real Estate Conference in Colorado. And you were on a panel doing an Oxford-style debate um, Mm -hmm. with Jillian Hellman uh, and arguing quite eloquently uh, that the best days of multifamily were behind us. Um, Mm -hmm. And then March 2020 happens and the whole world comes apart. And I know I know that in actuality, you're actually quite bullish on multifamily, but mm-hmm. have you felt at all prophetic over the last six months or so?
0: God, no, no, I, absolutely not. I, I think that this was one of those panels where, you know, normally you have a panel and people are basically agreeing with each other and it's like, I don't want to be on those panels. I want to be in a, like a full scale battle. So they said, we have a debate instead of a panel. Would you like to chair the debate? And I was like, sure, but, but I, I, I'm really aggressive on debates because I know in a debate, you don't look at the other side. You only you're you're completely one sided. And, and so I need to be up against somebody that's really strong. And, and so the organizer comes back and says, oh, we've got Jillian Hellman. She's really strong. So I was like, that's going to be fun, right? So that debate was not really about my beliefs. It was about taking one side and, and hammering it home. And if you've noticed, I, I gave Jillian fair warning and said, you know, I'm going to go after you. And she's like, I'm going to go after you, Neil. Right. <laughs> and so we it was it was no holds barred. It was it was a very aggressive you know thing. And, and uh, we, we, we got an email immediately uh, after the conference. That was the. The, the number one rated segment of the conference. And I think it was simply because it was so aggressive and, uh, and, and people really enjoyed that. But uh, no, definitely not feeling prophetic because some of that was really acting more than belief. Um, it, it is not my, my belief is that in the short term, the best days of multifamily are behind it. And COVID changed that. So now the next 18 months are going to be incredibly rough for everybody. Most people think like we've weathered the storm and they don't understand the concept of how real estate works. And it's far too soon to weather anything. We're just getting started here. The next 18 months are really tough, but because of COVID and because of the $4 trillion that we just injected into the US economy and the $10 trillion of stimulus injected into the world economy, the best days of multifamily are now ahead of it. And and you know, we can talk about, you know, what cap compression means and why it occurs outside of real estate, but basically we restarted the multifamily boom cycle, but it the, the restart has a 12 to 18 month very rough patch and and basically that patch starts we're reporting this on July 30th, it starts on August 1st two days from today because today people have unemployment benefits two days from now. They don't. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> yeah. I think you guys froze there for a second on my side. Yeah, no, oh, we,
1: we recorded it all. We got your voice. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're good.
2: <Okay. laughs> yeah. It's, um, that's what I keep telling people, you know, people are like, well, you know, why, where are the real estate deals? You know, the economy's crashing. There should be some real estate deals right now and, and housing prices should be dropping and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, there's still too much government cheddar out there. There's, there's, you for know, anything to
0: happen, right? Anything I mean, to happen. Yeah, it's every market, yeah. Every market supported right now.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's a very strange, so. uh, no, we sold our home here in Las Vegas uh, about a month ago. And I did that because we had we bought back in 2013 at the bottom of the market. We'd had a huge run-up in equity. And I'd been through the, the 2008 cycle. I'd ridden that down uh, and then saw what happened to real estate here in Las Vegas. Now, there's no guarantee it's going to happen again. But we're at 30% unemployment in the state of Nevada, which is the highest in the union there's no way that doesn't impact the economy and real estate there's just absolutely no way and i and i'd rather be i'd rather be wrong in, in the other direction than than right you know
0: well, i got to tell you i think the henderson's got it right this is i couldn't think of a better time to sell in vegas i mean vegas has had an amazing run in the last seven years better than most metros in the us to be honest so that that run up has been uh, you know phenomenal Uh, And I think that all run ups end and Vegas is going to be hit extraordinarily hard. I think that if I had to pick two cities in the U.S. that are going to be the hardest hit from this particular pandemic, it's going to be Vegas and Detroit. Um, When I am looking at what is going to happen to the balance sheet of the MGM, I'm going to I'm looking at what's going to happen to, um, you know, all of the big players in Vegas. The damage to the balance sheet is so excessive and, and so phenomenal that they're gonna be struggling for years, even if even if two months from now we get a vaccine and things resume, right? So people are like, yeah, things can resume. Yes, but the balance sheet damage is done. What is done is done. They still had to pay their hundreds of millions of dollars of loans it during this time and they've been scrounging and they've been basically leveraging their other assets and and there's no way to undo that damage and it's going to take a very long time so in my mind you'll see bankruptcies in vegas large ones uh really in in 2021 i don't i don't foresee seeing a lot of them in 2020 you know these some of these are well capitalized it's going to take them a while before they resort to bankruptcy Last option, people are like, oh, yeah, we'll just declare bankruptcy and write it off. I mean, they don't understand that for business. That's the very last step because you lose your leverage capability. You lose your ability or some very, very large bankruptcies in Vegas in in 2021.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it's the people what people need to remember is that real estate lags the economy. Uh, You know, real estate, a friend of mine said that often real estate looks back at what the economy did and the stock market looks forward. And, you know, that's why.
0: Very true. That's a great comment, by the way. That's a phenomenal comment because it's absolutely true. The stock market today is looking at you know, the the extremely high likelihood that we get a, a weak vaccine, right? Basically a fifty percent efficacy or greater within the next six months. So it's really looking at where we could be twelve months from now with all this stimulus and all this money floating around and and you know it being yield with that money Still going to be there. The government is not going to withdraw that four trillion dollars. It's already given out to the people. Well, that money still exists. It's in the system. It needs to yield a year from today. And when that vaccine is found, well, stock market's betting that the P/E ratios are going to improve, which makes sense from their perspective. It makes sense. I mean, I don't believe that the stock market today represents the uh, the mainstream. It it represents you know rich people, and those people are looking forward at what's best for them, and they're they're making the the right bets. But real estate, yeah, it has a bigger lag than than the the stock market. So. Keep in mind, U.S. real estate was the reason for the 2008 crash. We caused that crash. But when I ask people this trivia question, I'm going to throw it at you guys if you're okay with that. You know, when did real estate in the United States bottom out in the 2008 recession? What's your guess?
2: I would say, um, you want a month or just a year?
0: A, a quarter.
2: Uh, I would say fourth quarter of 2012.
0: You're very close. You're actually the closest that I've ever had. So it was the second quarter of 2012. But but the recession really started in the second half of 2008. So bottom line is it took 4 years for real estate to bottom out. And then since then, of course, you know, when it bottoms out like that for so long and obviously shoots up for 8 8 or 9 straight years, but I think that's the message that I send to people on these podcasts. There's just too many people talking about who dodged a bullet, like, well, this is a slow <laughs> bullet. It hasn't gotten to you yet. It hasn't hit you yet. Yeah. Right. It's it's a bullet in in slow motion and it's still coming. I mean, there's nothing fundamentally changed about the bullet.
1: Yeah. Well, and in different places, it can, it's going to be worse. I mean, part of the reason it's going to be so bad here also is that we just don't have the Um, the population close outside of Vegas to have those like, we're going to go on a day trip to Vegas, which is where like a lot of the beach communities are. And, you know, those people, we have a lot of people in the short-term rental space and they're doing well and that's not going to happen. And even if we have a vaccine six months from now, people are still not going to come here. They're still not going to go, yep, going to get on a flight because that's, I mean, that's my feeling. And six months, even if I'm vaccinated, probably not going to take a cross-country plane ride until like I've seen what happens after everyone's been, or most, a lot of people have been vaccinated, then I might fly. So we're just going to get, it's it's not coming back for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's going to take a while and, and, and you know, it's going to hurt real bad. I think that, you're absolutely right on this being one of those recessions. Sorry about the background noise. It'll, it'll stop in a minute. Um, this being one of those recessions where different states are hurting at a completely different level. Right. So yesterday I was looking at Utah's numbers. Davis County, where we're building a new industrial asset, is at four point seven percent unemployment at the end of June. Four point seven percent. Detroit is at 40%, right? So four out of 10 people in Detroit. So there is one city worse than Las Vegas at this point in time, and that's Detroit, right? So Vegas is right after that and then Orlando. And and so when we're looking at these, we're seeing a pattern of cities that were fundamentally very, very strong before the pandemic with jobs are coming back faster. So Phoenix and Utah are leading the recovery and so are places like Raleigh and, and Charlotte. Um, I expected Austin to do better, but it seems to be in the middle of the pack, which is surprising to me. I thought that with, with so much tech, Austin would do better, but not so far. So where's the unemployment really low? It's low in Arizona, which refused to shut down. Basically, it traded lives for economic benefit and one could say purely from a heartless perspective that it was the big winner because unemployment rates are, not, are lower than 8% in all parts of you know, um, Arizona and some parts are as low as five or 6%. If you look at the top 10 cities in the US with low unemployment, three are, are in Phoenix Metro, right? So Tempe, Chandler um, and, um, and uh, Mesa, are in that top, you know, top ten, and so it seemed like that gamble that they took worked for them. And you might say, "Hey, no, no, the numbers that are pretty high now, yeah, but they're not shutting down. What they're doing now is, you know, they're accepting mask mandates and they're they're being more clever about it. We've definitely gotten smarter at it. We understand that." Closing bars has mean that these are different kinds of impact levels, and we're beginning to learn from science and data and, and studies on which ones have the most impact and which ones have the least impact, and we're going to play the game better in the coming months. So that's the good news. We're going to play the game a lot better in the coming months. And then the second piece, I think, that is going to help places like Vegas come back. And, you know, I... I'm not in 100% agreement with you that people won't get on a plane um, after a vaccine because there's a lot of pent-up demand for for that kind of travel that we will see at that point of time. But the second thing is going to help us that no one's talking about now, but three months from now, I guarantee people will talk about it, is therapeutics. So there's two ways to fight COVID. One is get vaccinated so you don't get it. But the second one is to fight it with drugs when you do get it and we are making very rapid progress on drug efficacy getting better. If we could, you know, if people went into the hospital right now, it's taking them 15 days in the hospital before either death or discharge, right? And that's killing our hospitals. I mean, I tell you, this is not about the deaths. And, And once again, it's a heartless comment, but I have to say that because we've already seen that Some parts of the country are a little, you know, more heartless than the others. And it is what it is, right? And let's not get into the politics of it. But this is about the ICU bed count in the U.S. What is going to happen is that the politicians and the business community are going to drive the opening to the point where we have no ICU beds left. And then they're going to have to pull off because at that point, the the screaming and the yelling that comes from the general public is going to stop them from, you know, going further. So the ICU bed count of the U.S. is what is really driving the US economy today. Mm-hmm. And if we had, uh, if we had th- therapeutics, drugs that were twice as good, guess what that means? We just doubled the ICU count in the United States, which means that we could open a lot more. So the, the good news is that we are making better progress on therapeutics and on vaccines simply because fundamentally vaccines are hard, mm-hmm. drugs are not. Drugs, you know, can, can get into the marketplace much sooner than vaccines can, because if you mess up a vaccine and you vaccinate people, how do vaccines work? I mean, you, you inject people with COVID-19. That's how vaccines work, right? Yep. Well, you make a mistake on that, you screw the whole world. But if you make a mistake on a drug, you kill a few patients, which is why drugs come into the marketplace much faster than vaccines do, and so I think in three to four months, you're going to see some very powerful drugs, some cocktails that are going to get better, remdesivir mixed up with hydrochloroquine or whatever it is that seems to work. And you're going to see hospital stays shrink. And when that happens, we're going to be able to open our economy more because this is all about ICU beds at this point in time. Nothing else matters. Yeah.
2: And your and your point is not so much about the the general public um you know, reaction to COVID and all that. It's just that the damage is already done to most of these businesses. I mean, the most of their balance sheet, the damage is already done. Um, and
0: yeah, know. I mean, I mean if you look at every business that was a, let's say we'll talk about haircutting salons. We'll talk about gym owners. Well, some of them haven't paid uh, their, their, you know, their landlords, but let's say that they, that, that they got rent for free. Let's assume the best case scenario. They still had to pay employees, and rent is not your only cost. There's dozens of other costs. There's insurance. There's, you know, utilities. There's so many costs. And what's happening is that there, a lot of these build businesses were healthy. They had hundred thousand dollars in the bank. They had fifty thousand dollars in the bank. And what's going to happen is by the time we get to that vaccine, that hundred thousand dollars gets down to zero, right? And now they're borrowing from mom and dad and everybody else. So effectively, their 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 balance sheet is negative, right? And then if something else unrelated to COVID happens, uh, a bankruptcy in Cook County in Chicago happens, you know, uh, a, a large company goes under because of you know, the, this impact, they will not be able to sustain that impact. So a lot of the, 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 the dominoes are gonna keep falling after a vaccine because at this point we've weakened that portion of the economy, right? So, so that's, the, the, that's the bad news that this impact goes on for a while. The, the good news is I think that we are getting better at fighting this thing. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing, the you know, the therapeutics are getting better. At this point, I mean, two months ago, I was saying, I don't think we get a vaccine this year. I think it's just nonsense. I think that the speed at which vaccines work, there's no past evidence that a vaccine can be made this quickly. Today, I'm going to say I was wrong. I was wrong two months ago because the rule book is just being thrown out as far as the, the vaccine creation is concerned. We went... You know, Jillian and I were on a on a webinar in, uh, about in in late April or oh, I think it was May, and and she and I were talking, and and at that point there were nine or ten vaccine candidates that were in human trials. That number has jumped forty two. Wow! Right? Because this is such a worldwide problem. As far as I'm concerned, we only need one out of forty two to work. Yeah. And if right now we'll take weak vaccines that are at 50% efficacy as well so even less than 1% one of them has to work so bottom line is something's going to work uh, my my bet is on oxford university astrazeneca i think they, they have a strong vaccine the pune guys in india have a a, a very strong can, candidate and the chinese who have had three extra months Sinopak, is a very strong candidate so i think one of these three wins and we start we don't get the vaccine yet but Keep in mind, the, the news that a actual vaccine is in the marketplace creates a positive bu- buzz. Real estate is based on consumer sentiment because people buy cars and homes when they feel good about themselves, they feel good about the economy. So just the, the consumer sentiment boost that you get from the announcement that a candidate has been approved by some FDA somewhere in the world is going to give us months of boost in spending. And and that's what the economy needs right now. So there's there's the good news is coming sooner, even though the vaccine might take a while to get to us to actually be in our bloodstream.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I never thought about that. It it really is a worldwide. Um, like uh, so many people are going after it, whereas
0: typically yeah, everyone's obsessed, right? Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. and everyone's breaking the rules like the FDA just simply has taken the rule book of vaccination is like, you know, <laughs> all right. So who wants to do human trials? Great. <laughs> when, when do you want to start tomorrow morning? OK, can you start tonight? Yeah, <laughs> right. So yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing what is happening. Right. All the red trape is just gone when it comes from vaccination. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, OK, so what do we you know you you are still investing correct I mean you're I, you're doing, I know you're doing a, you're doing a development deal you're doing a uh, you're still you're still investing what do we do with all that information if for' somebody that wants to continue investing how are we managing our downside risk <laughs>
0: So, you know, your audience, Neil, I mean, a lot of them are interested in from a value-add perspective, so maybe I can start right there. So I'll start with value-add multifamily, and then we can kind of talk construction. We can talk about other asset classes if they're interested in student housing or whatever. Um, I think that it's not a bad time to buy multifamily, but you have to understand this, that there's a lot of people saying, hey, prices are not falling yet. Prices haven't fallen. Maybe we shouldn't keep waiting. Well, understand what I'm about to say. So, the first month where net operating income of multifamily was affected was April, right? March there was really no impact. People had already paid rent before the bad news came out. So, April is the first month where we saw tenants realizing they didn't have to pay or they couldn't pay. We started getting, you know, layoffs. So March, so April, May, June, and. You know, so far, obviously July numbers haven't come out. So if you look at a multifamily that is on sale today, they send you a T12, which has 12 months of rent rolls, and you basically are going to buy it based on that, right? Well, only three out of those 12 months at this point are are damaged goods, right? The remaining nine months are pristine and, you know, in the middle of a boom. Well, so what that happens is today, they don't have to drop drop the price much because you're looking at the aggregate 12 month and only three months are damaged. Well, then a month later, it's four months and then it's five and then it's six. So the price drops are automatic. There's nobody drop, dropping prices. It's just a million people use Excel spreadsheets. And what they do is they look at two things. They look at the prevailing cap rate of the marketplace, which seems to be rock steady at this point in time. It's not dropping, it's not changing. And then they look at the net operating income and people might say, yeah, but Neil, we keep hearing things like, well, you know, occupancy is not dropped at all. We're at the same occupancy and most people are paying rent and, you know, the delinquency is only up five or 10%. Well, my message for you folks is this, almost all the profit in multifamily is in the last 20% of occupancy, the the occupancy between 80 and a hundred. And US multifamily occupancy was already at 95 and trending down slowly because you know prices have gone up a lot so out of that 20% which really is 100% of your profit you had lost a quarter before before the pandemic hit so now that that three quarters of income it's it's basically the occupancy and I, when i say occupancy i mean economic occupancy people that are paying not people that are sitting they are not paying you. So when you look at economic occupancy, you weren't at 95, that was physical. You were at 92 because there was already delinquency before. Now you'd lost 40% of, the, of the, your potential income, right? Already before the pandemic. Now that 92 is going into the mid eighties. So when you were at 92, so for a moment, understand this, all of the money you're making is from 80 to 92. Okay, so let's call it twelve dollars. Your income is twelve bucks. So now, post pandemic, your income is going to go from ninety-two to let's say eighty-six. Okay, and most of that impact is not physical vacancy; it's economic vacancy. People not paying you. So your twelve bucks has become six bucks. So if your twelve bucks became six bucks, didn't your net operating income fall by half? right? Yeah. So when, you, when someone's going to buy that property, as each month goes by, and more and more of your income is at that 86% level rather than that 92%, would not the price automatically drop each month? Nothing to do with cap rates. I mean, no one in the US is talking about cap rates dropping. But because multifamily prices are simply a very simple multiplication between net operating income multiplied by cap rate equals price. And if one of those is dropping every single month which is happening all across the board, well, then prices will drop every single month. There is nothing more to it. Prices don't need to drop. They will drop because net operating income is dropping, right? So we are at a different NOI level. So bottom line is it's inevitable that every month the deals will get better into multifamily. And in my mind, the best deals are going to be in July 2021, one year from now. Why? Because one year from now, so think about it, April is the first month when when you got, you know, your your T12s basically got hammered, which means next year in March, right, is going to be the time when you have 12 months of the post-pandemic, right, Mm -hmm. T12s. And by that time, I believe a vaccine would be found. So the last few months of those may not be as bad as the first few months that we are experiencing right now. So it's actually going to be mending at that point. So. So now you have 12 months of T12. And if if somebody basically says, okay, I'm going to take these 12 months and put my property up for sale in May or June, well, you're going to be making offers in June and buying in July, right? Mm -hmm. So that's probably the low point, the absolute low point at that point. And if the recovery is much faster, much, much faster than I think, then the low point gets moved. It may not be July. It might be a little bit earlier than that. But bottom line is, if you're buying understand that you're buying an asset which is going to go down in price. There is no analyst at this point predicting multifamily prices will stay stable. CBRE, down. Marcus and Millichap, down. Cushman, down. The banks, down, right? So if you're looking at Bercadia or you're looking at all of these guys, Fannie Mae down, Freddie Mac down. You wanna buy it, that's fine, but you're gonna buy in a market where decline is guaranteed. Yeah. Right. That's my message for you. Is it a good time to buy? And I'll tell you why. Four months ago, me and a bunch of other people and you guys were basically fighting, you know, uh, sellers. I mean, it was it was totally a seller's market. We had one hundred thousand dollars in deposits due on day one, sight unseen. And then basically they were giving us 60 days to close. Today, that same seller is like, oh, no, no, you know, take your 30 days. I don't need any money hard. And I'll give you two extensions if you need to close because he doesn't want you to wait another two months because he knows that his price is gonna go down every single month. So they're like giving you all the time. He just wants to get you in contract and get maybe 50 grand in his pocket. So you you know, you know, now have some, some reason not to walk away from this. So in that sense, you're actually in a better market, right? Mm-hmm. so it's it's a weird sort of thing do you look at it as glass half empty do you look at it as glass half, half full i i can guarantee that the best deals are in the future they're not there today but if you buy today you're in a better place than you were in feb so which way do you look at it I don't know i'm looking at it as my company is not going out of business in the next six months I don't need the acquisition fee so I'm just going to sit here and wait yeah yeah well right and and you might say well what am i doing in the meantime and the answer is Luckily, I'm also a developer <laughs> and the development world in some ways is having the best of this because I have never signed development loans at 4% before. I mean, development loans are always more expensive, but right now they're just ridiculously cheap, right? And 4.25% you can get a $30 million building built. And we don't have to deal with any of these super onerous uh, impounds. You know, Fannie and Freddie are, are like saying, I want nine months of principal and I want nine months of interest. And I want you to give that to me up front and I'll give that back to you whenever I feel like it right? Western world has no such concept, right? They're like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, if you get a loan, you get a loan, we'll fund it. So to me, I think the best thing that you could be doing if you were a developer, please, for God's sake, don't do this if you're not a developer, because <laughs> the development market is a very tough market, right? That, that's a terrible reason to get into development. But if you are a developer, you get to skip this year, right? So I'm building in Mesa. Mesa already has the strongest rent growth in the United States post-COVID, right? So give or take a a city or two of strongest growth in the U.S. post-COVID, but I'm not delivering anything for 19 months. So to me, I get to have the incredible benefit of much lower interest rates than I projected. Mm -hmm. And I also get to see an economy on the upswing 19 months from now when I'm leasing up, right? So I think that that from that perspective, I think development's in a good place. The downside is if that is today you can't get development loans unless you have a track record so it's a horrible time to be a new developer because banks are simply only working with folks that they know so a lot of banks are simply like we're not going to work with you unless we've already loaned to you before
2: yeah yeah, yeah. well and you so, what you mm-hmm. what you're really talking about is is also is what's your time horizon You know, I mean, if you are, Mm -hmm. if you're somebody who has had a multifamily deal that you bought four years ago and that loan is due a year from now, uh, the term ends the year from now and that's when the exit was supposed to happen, you're, you're going to be hurting.
0: Um, If you're somebody- You're going to be hurting and you're going to be hurting big time because you're not going to be able to refinance that property. And- one of, that, one of the reasons for that is, I mean, hopefully you have multiple extensions, right? But keep in mind, people say this stuff like, we have multiple extensions. What they should be saying is, we have multiple extensions as long as we perform to a certain level. Banks are not idiots. They're not just letting you uh get extensions for free those extensions have you read the language in your contract it says things like you have to have rents to a certain level you have to have occupancy to a certain level you have to have delinquency to a certain level so if you're not going to have any of those things then and then you're actually not eligible for that extension now having said that banks don't want to see banks don't want to take properties back so if you do a good job of running your property even if you don't hit that benchmark you come in 10 percent less I can almost guarantee they will give you that extension because the banks know a year from now that the situation is on its way up, right? So we've been in a trough, horrible trough, down, 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 and now we're beginning to go up. So when a bank sees that, if they see you managing the property well, even if you're below that threshold, they'll probably let you extend. But the message I have for everybody is, yes, if you are, were due to, to extend your loan or to refinance in Q, Q1, Q2 of next year, you're going to have a really tough time. So you'd better be aggressively working on your property right now.
2: Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Um, so we've, I think we've, we have covered the, the economy. I mean, more than we, as much as we can in, <laughs> in a little, you know, 45-minute podcast. But uh, I know for a fact that you are an outsourcing expert. Um, and last, I think I spoke to you, you, I think you had 25 virtual assistants. It's probably more now. Um, but it's 25
0: you- employees and 19 of them are full-time virtual assistants. So there's 19 employees that we have that are basically, they, they live in the Philippines or the Ukraine, or they live in India and they work full-time for us, uh, us hours. So one of the things that we have always mandated is, you might be the best virtual assistant in the U.S., but if you don't work U.S. hours, we can't have you work for us. Yeah. Mm, interesting. <laughs> so they all work U.S. hours.
2: Um, so how? What? in what sort of ways are you using them? I, mean, I know you have, I've communicated with your, you know, one or two of your assistants by email and scheduling, yeah. and how they handle your scheduling. What are some of the other ways that you're using virtual assistants to to leverage their time?
0: Honest answer is the way we use virtual assistants. Firstly, we don't like using that word inside of our companies. They're just team members. That word itself creates a culture problem. And so we only use that word when we're outside of the company. Inside the company, they're team members. We simply refuse to think of them as VAs. They're just, you know, they're just people in the company. And because of that, they are, there's very few things we don't use them for. So it might actually be beneficial to flip that question and say, you know, what do we not use them? Or firstly, we don't allow people out that live outside the U S to do bank transactions. So they don't have access to our bank accounts. In certain cases they have read only access because they're transaction coordinators. So they can go in and look at incoming wires come from investors. So believe it or not, all documents all documents for investors are being handled by virtual assistant. Now, as you can imagine, they are the most senior. They are the ones we trust the most, mm-hmm. but still they don't have access to money. But do they have access to people's W 2s? Yes. They have access to social security numbers? Yes. Uh, so we've got two or three that are kind of that have risen to the top over years of service with us that that do that. So investor management, that's that's in the Philippines. When investors come in, we get about four or five investors a day, right? So it, it, we are very high throughput when it comes to investors. So those four or five investors are first processed by a virtual assistant and then set up with a US-based um, you know, um, you know, investor relations manager. So imagine my investor relations manager always says he's got the best job on earth because he just goes from call to call, to call, to call, to call. To call. All the pre-work, qualifying investors, making sure they're accredited, making sure that they're actually the right people, that they actually want our services, that they weren't just you know, looking on the internet and found us. Um, doing all of that work, answering their initial questions, telling them about us, all of that is virtual assistance. Scheduling the call, reminding people that they have a call is virtual assistance. Doing the call, US-based staff, And then the hundreds of steps that happen after is again virtual assistance. Right. So tagging them in the database, sending them more information, setting them up for future calls, uh, setting them information about our projects. All of that stuff is being hand- handled by virtual assistants. And you might say, well, why don't you have the virtual assistant do the investor relations management as well? Honest answer is they can do it just fine. But we st- we still have clients in the U.S. that don't know what a virtual assistant is. They don't get the warm and fuzzy feeling speaking to somebody from the Philippines. So we have to kind of adjust for that. But can the virtual assistant do an investor relations manager's job? Hell yeah, no. they absolutely can. So, so that's on the investor relations side, and then we have an army of them, like ten of them, that are focused on marketing, on investor marketing, right? So, this podcast, when when Neil's going to send this podcast to me, I I'm just going to put it, I, I'm going to type one word at the top, you know, of my my email. I'm going to say, I'm going to send this to Asana Marketing, which is, Asana Marketing is an actual folder in Asana, which has tasks. And I'm going to copy the person that, whose primary job it is to take this podcast and process it. So now, once I do that, You know, somebody comes into work in the morning. It's like, ah, Neil sent me a new podcast from Neil Henderson. Great. So he's going to read your email. He's going to take out all the content. He's going to go into different uh, software like Canva. He's going to create a custom header with my picture and your picture, do all of that stuff. He's then going to basically go into another folder where we have like 18 different places that we post these for podcasts one persons gonna convert it for use on our YouTube channel because that looks different and it has that spiky fun equalizer thingy going <laughs> right at the screen so he's gonna do that or she's gonna do that and and other people are going to be like okay let's post it on Facebook but Facebook is not Facebook Facebook is Facebook's. It's, you know, we're going to post this on Neil's page, the Grow Capitalist page, the Multibagical Multifamily Group, you know, all of these other groups. There's other groups that actually allow us to post our content. We go out and post it there. And then, then they're going to take it and repurpose it for Instagram. Then they're going to take it and repurpose it for email. So we, we, if it's some interesting quote that I've said, they're going to repurpose that, right? Imagine all of this stuff multiplied by about 1,000 recurring tasks that are set up in Asana. Mm-hmm. They're doing those. And they're doing it with very minimal, you know, supervision from other people because they've done it a thousand times before. Yeah. Right. So, and that's just podcasting. Podcasting is one of our 12 funnels. We have 12 different funnels. One of them is podcasting. And I don't even have a podcast. And I never want to have a podcast. You know, people say, What's your podcast, Neil? And my podcast is called Everyone Else's Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's a great and, and I love that. Everyone else's podcast is better, in, in my opinion. So, you know, I'm on podcasts all the time. So I, I'm spending the same amount of time that I would do on my own podcast, but I'm basically going on to other people's, uh, you know, e- events but that's one channel, right? So we have Facebook, uh, as a channel from a social media perspective. So they're not just putting podcasts on our on our Facebook groups. They're running our Facebook groups. They're answering hundreds of questions. They're doing that thing on Monday, which says, hey, post your deal. That's a virtual assistant. Okay. On Tuesdays, they're posting the uh, motivational message. You see those nice messages of people running and the moon and the sky. That's all virtual assistants, right? And Wednesday, they're probably doing something else. Like uh, they're asking like questions, which create, you know, people are talking and then they're answering those questions believe it they get over their knee right a lot of people say neil i think you just waste your whole day on the on the the social media and my answer (laughs) is i am never on social media yeah i don't even do social media for my personal stuff i mean my family knows that i will never answer them on on social media because i'm not really there it's other people yeah right and and this is not unusual i mean uh, when when you go look at you know people that have 10 million or 20 million twitter followers 99 percent of what's being posted and 99 percent of what's you know being answered are other people
1: yeah yeah no it's a clever it's it's the best way to do it if especially as you grow i mean we know because we're very small and it takes forever <laughs> to do any like to to reprocess and you know post make things into different little packages and post them everywhere and like we're, we're trying, but we also have a six-year-old that is home with us, and Neil has a full-time job, and so, like, it's... And, oh,
2: but, oh by the way, we also invest in real estate.
1: Yeah, you know. yeah there's a lot of things oh, cool. to do, so it's, I mean, it's it's a, a great tool <laughs> yeah. to have, and um, and there's nothing wrong with using people. I, I hate that people don't mm-hmm. get a warm, fuzzy feeling about someone just because they're in another country. That doesn't mean that there's that they aren't just as skilled as someone who is in the U.S. But
0: well, I can tell you one of those people, I'm not going to give you her name. I don't want her to get poached. <laughs> she, so, I, you know, because because they're in other places and investors would not like it, they they don't have access. No, none of these people have access to bank accounts for uh, investments. She has access to my personal bank accounts. So I trust her more than any assistant. I've had lots of assistants in the last 20 years of running businesses in the U.S. that were U.S. based. She's the first to ever get access to my bank accounts. I mean, I don't find there being a difference in ethics and a difference in competency. It's just a difference in cost. That's really all there is. And, and a lot of people, you know, they're, they're like, yeah, but my virtual assistant experience wasn't good. You really have to dig into that yourself. In my mind, if you're a good teacher, if you're a good organizer, your experience will be good. If you're a bad teacher and a bad organizer, your experience will be bad. Yeah. And you, you try and make up for that by having you hiring a person in the U.S. that is sitting next to you in the chair next to you. So now, without teaching them, you're basically wasting massive amounts of time with them basically wasting time watching you and learning from you, right? That's inefficient, but that's the standard. We basically have people come in and say, yeah, you can learn. Just sit here and watch me do stuff, and eventually you'll learn it. Sure, anybody can do that, right? But that's not the right way to do things. The right way is to actually spend structured time creating systems and processes and tutorials for people. And if you're able to do that, then what's the difference between doing it for people in the Philippines and doing it for people sitting next to you? Right. And what people don't realize is that what you're doing by having a person sitting next to you and following you is the worst, because the moment that person leaves the clock, you know, basically you're starting from scratch again. Whereas if you create the systems and processes and these video tutorials that we create every single day, those are all stored in Asana. So when a person goes away, Asana is a project management software. All we have to do is new person basically takes the John left. So you click on John and say, reassign tasks for John 2, click, and you select the new person. Now all the tasks are there. And you might say, well, how does a person know how to do the task? Well, that's because we never create a project without a video tutorial that's recorded using a software called Loom. Loom is a free software. It's a, uh, it's a uh, applet for the Chrome browser. It's always in the top right, left, right side of our browser. We click on Loom it's now recording our video, it's recording our screen and our voice. And I can tell you in two to three minutes, you can teach an incredible amount of process, it would probably take you two to three hours to write that as a process, because now you'd have to type it out and fix your typos and do screenshots. And it's going to take forever. And most people don't do it. So as far as we're concerned, our process is very simple. The, 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 the people that are teaching only ever use Loom. But the people that that the teaching is going to have to then convert that into a written document with screenshots. So I'm spending three minutes, they might be spending three hours, but they're doing it at five bucks an hour. <laughs> so then they send that back to me and I might spend five minutes editing that. Because what we learned a very long time ago is if you force people to do these complex, how to documents, they just don't do that. They find an excuse, right? Yeah. So we're just standardized on three minute videos. If it's longer than three minutes, create a new video because you're you're too verbose.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: makes sense. Okay, so um, you know if you've got somebody starting out wants to start off with a virtual system, let's say they're a, a small podcaster, you know, with a, a family at home and a six year old, and a self storage business, uh, you know, they're trying to get started off the ground. Sounds
0: familiar. Yeah how would yeah. you how would you tell that
2: person to to dip their toe into uh, the world of of uh, a, a, A remote team member.
0: Um, So, you know, when when you were growing up, you went to college, you didn't argue about spending massive amounts of money and spending four years of your life in college. You think about it, four years is 8,000 hours, right? But you spend it. You knew that was a good investment. So the first thing I want to say is, Virtual assistants are the most magical things that you can ever believe when it comes to both your personal life and your professional life, but they are an, an investment. Mm-hmm. Is people say, I'm just gonna hire an assistant and I'm gonna go to Upwork and I'm gonna post something and then I will basically, um, I will uh, see how it goes. That's the wrong approach because you haven't burned your bridges. When you sign up for a college and you move into the dorm, you burned your bridges, right? That's what made college work. So my biggest, my message to you is if you're using a virtual assistant, burn your bridges. How do you do that? Don't hire one, hire two, and hire them for four hours a day. Because the key thing is I want a huge amount of pressure on you to make them productive. They're not the problem, you are. You're the problem, right? So when you have two virtual assistants, And you're paying them four hours a day that's eight hours multiplied by five bucks let's say 40 bucks a day okay and i can tell you the first month is all going to be wasted money let's assume a hundred percent of it is wasted so you basically wasted about eighteen hundred dollars okay at a hundred percent wastage that's your investment that eighteen hundred dollars is virtual assistant university Because during that first month, you'll force yourself to learn what you need to do to make these people efficient. And you're going to learn what you need to do to set systems and processes. And most importantly, that month, when you're throwing money down this this endless pit, it's going to force you to be creative and say, what portions of my life and my business can I automate? Hmm. You need to ask yourself that question a million times because that question is specific to you. It can't be specific to anybody else. The answers, There's no book that has the answers. You've got the answers in your head and you need that month to come up with all the answers. I pretty much guarantee that if you follow this process at the end of that month, you'll have lost 1800 bucks but you would have gained virtual assistants. And then why two? Because one of them often leaves and the moment they leave, you have to replace them. So what I tell people is, do them two hours a day, do them four hours a day, but get two virtual assistants mm-hmm. because one's better than the other. So when you need to fire them, you're not going to hesitate. Yeah. Because people, they have bad experiences because they don't fire the virtual assistant that they should be firing. You hire two, you can now compare, you fire one, you rehire the second one, you keep, grow, start, keep, you keep growing with that process and eventually you end up with two that you like. That's going to be awesome for a while. And then unfortunately, one of them will leave and you'll have to start that process again.
2: It's almost like you're a, you're a B testing them as you're doing
0: it. Yes. A B testing is really key with virtual assistants. We found that we had virtual assistants in, in a position for a year and we thought they were awesome. And the moment they left or we fired them, we realized that they were crappy. Mm.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Because you didn't have the. It's nothing to compare to.
1: Compared to. That makes sense. That's awesome.
2: Well, Neil Bawa, thank you so much for joining us. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and find out more about you, what would be the best way for them to do that?
0: Well, two ways. They're both very simple. First one, just Google my name. As I said, (laughs) I'm the only Neil Bawa on the internet. So N-E-A-L-B-A-W-A. Hit enter. You'll see about a hundred podcasts. You'll probably see about 30 or 40 conferences where I'm teaching live and that'll kind of get you started, right? There's also some I'm known for my controversial thoughts, and whenever I have a controversial thought, I write something on the internet. So you'll get to see plenty of interesting things there. Um, and then the second way is we believe in education. We're very, very strong on education. So we built Multifamily University, which is multifamilyu.com, as a website for all things real estate. It started out as all things multifamily, and then our, our our audience grew and they really wanted more than multifamily. So it's really all things real estate, uh, especially commercial real estate. We do single family only about three to four weeks a year, but the rest of the time it's about commercial. We do 40 deep dive webinars and town halls. Um, lot People love them. Uh, this year, 75,000 people will sign up for our webinars um, and, and, and town halls. Average attendance is always exactly the same 500 because that's how many people we can put in our zoom license everybody else we send them facebook links so we have three or four hundred people watching on facebook because they couldn't get into the the zoom link so whenever you sign up you'll notice that there's a zoom link and then below that is like if zoom doesn't let you in click this link so you can watch through facebook um but the the key is not the fact that it's a large audience, the key and, and questions, obviously, with a large audience are, are better in quality. And usually we spend 45 minutes answering questions in each of these webinars. But I think it's it's about the depth. We are very fanatic about our webinars being deep in content, because we find that there's too much shallow stuff that goes on in real estate. When I switch from tech to real estate, incredible. And so I hunger for that depth. So a, a lot of our conversations are very deep. And they're Some of them are topics that you wouldn't think about. I mean, I believe, for example, that in 2008, the banking system changed real estate forever for all of us. And so we have a webinar on that and has nothing to do with real estate. It just has to do with the impact of the banking system, because we think that those are things that people should think about or know about. So some of the topics are crazy off the wall and we enjoy that process. We are, you know, the bad scientists and we like to be true to our our reputation.
1: No, I think it's true, just right here in this podcast. I mean, we went into things that people we've talked COVID and and all this with other people, but we really got into some subjects that we've never touched on in in context to that. And it's um it was been it's been really interesting. So thank you.
0: All right, fantastic. Well, Neil, thanks, thanks for again. having
2: me on the podcast. Yeah, it's been great. Okay, that was Neil Bawa from GroCapitus and Multifamily University. It was uh, wonderful. Chatting with him, um, yeah. I'm glad that we uh, were able to get him on. Um, he's a he's a very in demand speaker. Um, although, of course, he, he, he admitted that he he basically just doesn't podcast. He just goes on other people's <laughs> podcasts. Hey, it's
1: a good strategy. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're if you're able to do that, yeah. Um, you know, someday. Yeah. Maybe. Yep.
2: <laughs> so uh, so we're, this is a little bit different. We didn't really get into Neil's. Um, uh, background in real estate and talk about the four values, the the money, the time, the knowledge, and, you know, whether or not I could do anything. But I mean,
1: I could guess on some of those. Yeah, we, we uh, he probably to. travels.
2: Yeah, yeah, He has because he has people that can run his things.
1: He probably spends a lot of time on this because it seems like he super enjoys it. And I think it's probably a full time job for him. Yeah. And he's definitely not a passive investor and money. He probably spends a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Spend, you know, spend $5 an hour yeah. for eight hours yes, of, yes. Uh, of virtual assistants a day. Start
2: there. Yeah. Yeah. So is that, is that your biggest lesson learned?
1: Uh, no. I mean, I, I, you could just like pull things from about every five minutes in the podcast and be like, Oh, that was neat. <laughs> that that. I never thought about that. He's clearly, um, a super intelligent man and has a lot of background in, um, he's just, he's, he's, he's like at a different level than, um, than some people, us. (laughs) Um, and, and he has a lot of deep thoughts. I think one of the things that I, you know, found interesting now, like he was like politics aside, here's the heartless here's, you know, this is where places are doing well and where they're not and why. And kind of it was interesting to see that Um, it's hard to separate some of that. And, you know, and and he was able to explain it that way. Now, does he separate that in his like normal life and how he's thinking? I don't know. I don't know what his, you know, politics or. Any of that is, you know, um, I've got emotional things about some of that stuff, but it was interesting to look at it from purely a business standpoint Mm -hmm. and not, you know, not thinking about the deaths and, and all of that nuance. So I just thought it was a I guess a lesson learned that it's you should look at that because it is going to affect the economy, the things that are going on. Um, and you can still make a decision to say, I'm not going to, you know, capitalize on that. If, if you feel like it's against your, um, your values or something like that, but you should know it, you should look at that effect because it's going to affect also long-term.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also important to remember, uh, That Neil, when you're dealing with other people's capital, when you Uh other people are trusting you with their capital, it's very important to, you know, I mean, there's often times where you do need to look at things from a very analytical uh, standpoint, and I think that was how would be how I describe Neil's uh, take on that is analytically, you know, you have to look at the places that are uh, that are less shut down or maybe having more deaths, but their economies are doing better. Yeah. Um, for him as an investor going forward and somebody who is in charge, um, who's been given the privilege of, of, uh, handling other people's money, uh, yeah. and livelihoods, then that's something that he needs to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally
2: understandable. So, um, for me, I need to hire a VA.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I know it's hard cause, um, you know, for us personally, we sold our house our child can no longer go to school. Personally, we don't feel like that's a good fit for our our family, whether, um, school, whether he can go back to school physically or, you know, if that, I don't think that's an option here in Cloud County County (laughs) anyway, but even if it was an option, it would not be what, what we would choose, um, for our child just based on living with, um, an older immune compromised person and, um, the experience that I want my child to have. And we're very privileged for being able to do that anyway. But when I also ended up having to step back from my job, um, which was in a medical field for some of the same reasons and also to, um, take care of our child because we also can't have child care for the same reasons um, and do his school for him. Part of it was our thought was that I could do some of these things. Is it worth me doing that? Because it's becoming clear after about a month that it's going to be incredibly difficult because our child is starved for attention and, and is, it's not the same as if this was a normal Non COVID time, and we were able to go to play dates or, um, you know, homeschool co-ops. I could probably balance this a little bit better. I'm struggling right now. It's only been a month, and we won't be able to figure it out. But if we can maybe take this lesson and say, okay, maybe we should do this and actually use it. I know we've used some services and some people before, but just talking to him, I'm wondering if we use those effectively. And maybe it's our fault that it was costing a lot of money for something that didn't feel, you know, so that's maybe going too personal for, um, into like our specific, but I think it's something you have to think about, you know, like that is where we're coming from and our, how we're going to maybe take this and, and make an adjustment. And then we just have to decide how much we want to invest in it. And, and if that's a, an investment that we want to make, um, for our goals and, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I definitely think it's a conversation that we we have to sit down and really think about and have. And and I'm grateful that we got to have this experience with Neil and, and kind of go, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, the other key lesson learned for me on a larger standpoint would be, um, you know, we, we got in the beginning, we really talked about the economy and and mm-hmm. COVID's effects on it. And a lot of people, there's a lot of people in real estate and just the economy in general right now who are going you know, um, well, the stock market's not going down. Uh, well, home prices aren't going down. Everything must be okay. Um, well, and it's, it's very important to remember that real estate lags the, the overall economy. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was a point I made, which is also stocks look forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who are investing in stocks are predicting that the economy is going to be better at some point in the future. That These companies are going to be okay in the future. Yeah. Um, And, uh,
1: yeah, we can guess that Disney will probably be fine eventually because people will go back to Disneyland and Disney world and Disney cruises and all those things. So, you know, if we, if we'd been able to, I would have like bought all the Disney stock when it was in the hole, um, you know, uh, but you know, the stocks are probably still decent for Disney because. They're going to be here. Home Depot, all those yeah. places. They're they're going to be around because um, they're not probably. They're also probably not over leveraged.
2: You hope. You hope. Uh, I mean, I mean Dis- Disney has gone through some bad times in the past. Um, they are they're a huge company with yeah. huge operations. You know, so yeah. I don't know what their balance sheet looks like. Um, and that's the point that one of the points that Neil made yeah. is that there's a lot yeah. of these companies who the damage has already been done on their balance sheet. It doesn't matter. The economy could, you know, we could have a vaccine tomorrow and everybody gets inoculated. But a lot of these companies are already um, in a lot of trouble. Oh. Okay, so we had a little, we had a little Tech brief difficulty. Zoom crash there. <laughs> um, so we were talking about Disney, and you were saying balance that the, yeah, you the were saying are- that the
1: damage is already done, and I was yeah. about to say that, you know, that is what Neil said, but he said that the damage is already done, and but and they may still be operating. The problem is if they don't have a safety net. So if something then happens again, yeah. and I would refute that in a, in as far as Disney goes. There's probably, there'd be very few things, hiccups that could happen that would completely destroy Disney. Um, Hopefully they have a big safety net, but like as soon as people can, they're going to get back on a Disney cruise. I mean, there's people, I'm sure there's people, I don't know if it's open anymore, but um, with uh, Disney World, I mean, I'm sure people went. Um, Once the weird restrictions get adjusted and aren't quite so... um, Shut down, you know, yeah. things aren't, aren't quite so uh, big. Um, people will go back. And also, Disney has its fingers in a lot of different places. There's still Disney Plus, there's still, um, you know, TV shows. There's, st- I mean, there was Donald Duck on a kid's Zvia soda that, <laughs> yes. that yeah. my kid drinks as a treat. Like, yeah. they're probably not going down, but it is, but you do have to think about other companies. So, um, you know, the casinos here. If they're in a bad place and then something else happens, you know, our local economy drops more, they might not be able to weather that storm. So, um, that I think was the point, but, um, anything else that you feel like was really that you wanted to touch more on or thought was really important to take away from this interview? No, I
2: I think we, we, covered most of it again just um everyone is waiting everyone's thinking that we're headed towards a real estate crash that's just like 2008 and as neil brought up is that 2008 the crash was caused by real estate and this is much more an an underlying
1: this is like upset i mean it's it's a
2: some people, it's a black swan. I mean, there's a lot of people. They, uh, Nicholas Nassim Talib would say, "No, this wasn't a black swan. We knew, we knew that. Something well, like we this knew could
1: that it, it could happen, but we weren't prepared for it. We didn't no. have systems set up to to um, have something different happen, and the, the market wasn't prepared for it. So the no. market, you know, the the proverbial mind of the market didn't see it as." something coming so even if individuals knew that it could be a possibility the market as a whole it, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't in the realm of possibilities so um this is something that is a an external hit mm-hmm. not an internal hit like 2008 was more what was happening inside real estate this is an external issue that is affecting real estate um And, and it sounds, and from what I understood, if I understand what he was saying, it's more of a short term effect for some places, again, like Vegas here, um, he was saying Detroit, it might be longer term, but in it, it, it seemed like he was saying that within, you know, 18 months, we're probably going to see a turnaround and things are going to go back to where they start going up possibly, obviously he's not a mind reader, but The man is very smart, yeah, and I enjoyed
2: talking to him. And one other, one other point I remembered was that he talked about um, long term. We still have four trillion dollars worth of stimulus that was injected into the U.S. economy alone, and another ten trillion worldwide. And a lot of times, what happens when you inject? Um, that much money into an economy is inflation happens. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that we like investing in real estate is a, it's a hedge against inflation because unfortunately what happens when you have inflation is prices rise, rents rise, mm-hmm. home prices rise. Yeah. And if you can get in and buy a, uh, a property, I'm not saying buy right now, that's not what I'm saying, but if you can buy in the past, um, for interest rates that are low during a, a time of low inflationary period and you have a period of high inflation what happens is that interest rate stays low but you start to see uh, a growth in the gap between um, your rent and the price and and that's what you're looking for
1: yeah
2: all right. awesome all right okay well once again that was uh, neil Uh, Neil Bawa from GroCapitus and Multifamily University. Look him up. And uh, we're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at road to and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.